You're listening to Evolution Digital, where we talk about how various industries have adopted technology to stay relevant and competitive in today's digital market. I'm Tracy Sheckel. Welcome back to Evolution Digital. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought new meaning to digital evolution as virtually the entire country moved to distance learning, telecommuting, and telehealth. Internet connectivity in rural areas has posed a challenge across the country and both providers and state and local government are clamoring to bridge the digital divide. In Maine alone, during an emergency session of the legislature, a $15 million broadband infrastructure bond was approved for a public vote this summer. This week, Evolution Digital is changing it up a bit. We had the opportunity to talk with two guests who are on the front lines of distance learning and telehealth. Beth Lambert of the Maine Department of Education and Stanley Whittemore, of the Bucksport, Maine Regional Health Center. As one might guess, both conversations were quite compelling and we felt that each deserved your individual attention. We're releasing both this week, beginning with Beth Lambert. Beth is the coordinator of secondary education and integrated instruction. And in addition to her professional responsibilities, she has two school-aged children at home and is experiencing firsthand what sheltering in place and access to online learning looks like while trying to do her own job and share her space with her husband who's working from home. Good morning, Beth. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, especially at this early hour of the day. (laughs) So your title is kind of long. Tell us what you do at DOE. Sure. Uh, In this position, I'm leading two teams. One team is a team of content experts who support educators. They do professional learning, create resources, and provide technical assistance in all of the eight content areas of the main learning results. And I also lead the learning and technology team, which oversees the main learning technology initiative, MLTI. MLTI, just in case for anyone who's not aware, um, is an initiative that began back in 2002. It was part of then-governor, now our U.S. Senator Angus King's visionary work with the then-Commissioner Albanese and the support of the legislature for a response to best prepare Maine students for our rapidly changing world of the early 2000s. (laughs) And through the initiative, Maine actually became the first state to provide a laptop to each 7th and 8th grade student and teacher Um, It also provides them with necessary software, wireless networks, technical support, professional development, and all the things that they need to effectively use technology for teaching and learning in the classroom. This initiative has been going on for the past 18 years, and which is quite impressive for an educational initiative. And so at the beginning of this year in January, we at the Department of Education um, began with convening an advisory board sort of in the spirit of Maine's bicentennial of looking back to look forward, to look at the 18 years of MLTI, look at what we've learned over time, what's worked really well, what the tenants of the program were in the beginning, and make sure that all of that was still as relevant and that we were doing it, we were using the most effective model for today's learner in 2020 and we know it's changed significantly over 18 years. So it was an appropriate, it seemed like an appropriate time. And certainly we never could have predicted 
that we would face what we're facing now due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm so grateful that we had started that process before and grateful for the infrastructure of MLTI uh, because that's really allowed us to immediately launch some of the work and the certainly the Connect Kids Now initiative for connectivity that we have been able to do because of that infrastructure of MLTI in our state. Interesting. As you were telling the story, I was thinking, did somebody have a crystal ball? Because, <laughs> you know, who to thunk is right. So I would imagine even with what you guys had started early on, things went into overdrive when the pandemic hit and really took a hold on the state. So how did you switch gears and, and what did you find out? And we all know that connectivity in the state is a challenge in some places. How did you how did you address that? Yeah, it's true. It really does feel. I wish I could claim to have a crystal ball, and <laughs> but um, we didn't. But what we what we did know is having the you know some great minds of the technology integrators and directors and administrators and educators in the state who have been working for eighteen years. This digital divide has existed, and we know about it. We know it's we know it's been a challenge, and so we had a few months head start because we had already started to address this issue of connectivity. Because the idea around MLTI, the the dream is that technology will be integrated into all of our students' learning. We know it wasn't necessarily happening. And so the advisory board wanted to look at that. And one of the major barriers to that was connectivity. So we had started already, and we were very fortunate to have this data working with the Connect Maine Authority to share their data on broadband availability in Maine. Um, We were able to combine that with our Maine DOE data of student addresses and determine how approximately how many students are living in areas where broadband just isn't available to them. Uh, So, And through that, we had determined that there are about 8,000 students who lived in areas where there is not an opportunity to get broadband. It It doesn't exist. There's no access there. We know this does not account for students who live in households that cannot afford broadband. So we were we were with this data just looking at who we knew didn't even have the option. It didn't matter about affordability. We know there's also a significant portion of our population who are not able to afford it for their household. But since we had started there, when the COVID-19 crisis hit and classroom-based instruction was suspended, we had groups reaching out to us wanting to help with this issue of connectivity. And so with the charitable funds that we received, we were able to target Piscataquis County, which actually has the highest number, percentage of students living in areas where they do not have access to broadband. It's 18% of their student body in the Piscataquis County schools live in areas without access to broadband. And so wow. we, when we established that, we thought this is where we're going to start. We don't, we, at that point, we didn't have funding for the whole state. Yeah, so that's quite a number of 18%, and it makes a huge difference for their ability to continue education during this time to be able to ensure that every one of their students was connected and had access. Wow, that just, that blows my mind. Like mm-hmm. one in five and a half kids don't have access. Right. Unbelievable. And that, and again, that's, those are kids that just don't even have the opportunity. They live in a place where you can't get it. So right. again, not even accounting for any student who might not be able to ha- have a family that might not be able to afford it. So we were fortunate you know, that 
as the COVID-19 crisis continued and Congress passed the CARES Act, which provided some emergency funds to states, and knowing that this connectivity was a major priority identified by a number of stakeholders in the state, Governor Mills allocated a portion from her governor's emergency relief fund, those GEAR funds, to the Maine Department of Education to provide connectivity for Maine students. So that has been a game changer because now we've been able to meet 100% of the reported need from the school's reporting of connectivity for students in Maine. I have a friend who actually was telling me about my school district is MSAD 15. And she said when the kids were first out of school, the school sent a survey and said, what devices do you have in the house? What kind of connectivity do you have? So obviously it was a huge effort because apparently the schools needed to get that information from the families before they could get it to you. It's pretty amazing. How many did you say have reported? We've had 75% of our schools have reported. Amazing. Yeah. And it was a huge effort because one of the things as we talk about what what we were doing pre-COVID with MLTI, we were talking about how do we get this data? How do we find out if what, how many students are out there that don't have access to the internet? And then when COVID hit and we had to have that data immediately, we reached out through multiple rounds of statewide surveys to school administrators, asking them to identify the needs of their students, which of course was a challenge because they have to then reach out and get families to respond, you know, so it's really been all hands on deck, everybody working towards this. And we're just so grateful to have been able to to meet so much of the need. It's incredible. So what exactly did you do? There's connectivity, there's kids that probably didn't have devices either. So what did the next steps look like and how long did it take or how soon were you able to get everything in place? Yeah, well, and it is a process, as you can imagine, when we started this, a major challenge, in addition to the data, just knowing how many students we needed this for, was availability. I mean, we were not the only state dealing with this. This was a worldwide issue. And so the availability of devices was limited. And so that affected our timeline significantly because we were being given dates of devices being available you know, six weeks later, and which, you know, we said, that's not going to (laughs) work. So, you know, we were really grateful, again, to be able to leverage the support of the state, the governor's office, and, you know, how much we can work together as a state. It shows us how effective that can be. And these are currently being deployed. So as far as the timeline, you know, it's two months, which is too long when you think about Anytime kids are without connectivity, but at the same time, when you look at, think about the grand scheme to be able have, to have done this from collecting the data to getting devices in students' hands being about two months is quite impressive and you know, really shows the team effort that it takes and it continues to take. But what we did is we, we did, we established in the survey, we asked people, okay, how many students do you have that need just internet? They have, they have a device that they can take home. How many just need connectivity? How many have connectivity at home but don't have a device with them so it's not useful? <laughs> and then how many need both? And so of all of that, we ended up, it was 21,845 students who reported lacking connectivity at home. So that's, again, represented in the 75% of schools that who reported. 
Wow. We purchased uh, 14,494 service contracts. So for wireless, we asked in the survey for schools to identify the service provider who had the strongest service in their area. So we ended up doing those service contracts through three different providers. And then we also had 7,351 students who only needed devices. They had connectivity, but they needed a device. And so we were able to um, purchase devices for them so that they could all have this sort of access to equitable online learning opportunities. Wow. Two months is an amazing amount of time, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) So at your level, do you have a lot of in-the-trenches information about how the distance learning is going throughout the state? Yeah. I mean, it's, as you can imagine, as diverse as Maine is and as large as Maine is, there is a spectrum that's happening out there. And we are working to support our our educators who are doing a phenomenal job responding and adapting to continue to provide education to the students. There's certainly challenges because depending on where you live, there's stronger connections and it's easier to connect through a cellular device. And I think teachers are working to work with students and help them as they navigate and support that. You know, really, we understand that technology opens up a whole world of experts and information to our students. And we are seeing educators as they have had more time to respond to the COVID-19 crisis and being having classroom-based education suspended. We are seeing them embrace and work within and experience and experiment for allowing technology to really influence, to enhance the type of lessons and type of experiences that students can get. It's really for them not about just sitting and learning from a tablet and no human interaction, but it's about giving students the opportunity to have a connection with their teacher still, having checkpoints and check-ins and opening up the world to our children and supporting our educators to be able to confidently access technology, something that we've been working on for 18 years in Maine. And now everyone has been forced into this world and we're hoping that to continue on that path forward to understand and engage with this new learning in just new and exciting ways that will continue well past this COVID-19 crisis. Well, and I do, I want to talk about the future a little bit, but even in my own little sphere of people that I know with children, I mean, I've heard of kids taking gym classes on Zoom and, you know, things that are different. I think one of the, the key things that I've heard from friends of mine is the kids being able to do so much on their own schedule. Some kids are morning kids, some kids are evening kids. And when that flexibility comes in, the kids are actually more productive. And the one, I guess it's a complaint, is, you know, I have a kindergartner and I have to sit in on his Zoom 20-minute kindergarten class with him in the morning because he just doesn't have the attention span or he wants to play with the buttons or whatever. And my, I'm thinking... The fact that he can do this and see his classmates and interact with them in this world that we're in, that's something to be thankful for. However, I'm not the one who has to sit there with the five-year-old either. (laughs) (laughs) 
absolutely. I mean, the idea, the way that we've seen like real world connections where we have students that are connecting to NASA to learn science principles because they have access to that and it's opened up that world. They are accessing data sets that maybe they've just, they just weren't realizing were available and so readily accessible when we were in a classroom-based environment. And now they've, they have that. And so just imagine the world and how connected and integrated these experiences are. So they're often not like we might have seen previous, you know, okay, now is my reading time and now is my math time. Now is, but rather now as we integrate and as we look and connect with museums and real world places that are making educational opportunities available, they're showing students, they're making how it's real. They're showing students how the knowledge they learn in their classroom transfers into the world in which we live. And that is what we've been aiming at for education for so long. That's, you know, teachers will say, that's what we want them to get. And we're seeing how technology opens that up and makes that available, even if you live in the most remote areas of Maine, you know, right. that you have all of that. And that's, I mean, it's just so exciting. I can't, it's in the midst of a crisis. There is so much that is crisis, that is painful. And if this can be a small light in moments of that, I'm just so hopeful for what we can help once we are out of this crisis and still have this connectivity, what that will look like. Right. Well, and, you know, the premise of Evolution Digital has been for the previous episodes to look at how people did business 40 years ago before digital evolution took over, how they're doing business today. And then one portion that I always do is, okay, get out your crystal ball and tell me how you see where we are today changing and what it's going to look like going forward. And my head spins when I think about whether we never have a snow day again, or what are you thinking as a professional in the field that this is going to do for education going forward? Yeah, I mean, simply, right. We're going to be, snow days, we're good, right? (laughs) We don't need those. But also we're going to be prepared for, God forbid, any crisis that could happen. In Maine, we've seen much smaller scale ice storms, wind storms that have shut down for much smaller periods where students haven't been able to be in their schools. But we will have built upon that infrastructure to ensure that education continues in Maine, regardless of where. And I mean, that's that's life-changing. Um, and certainly we're looking at thinking about education differently going forward in general, not just under emergency situations or snow days, but how do we continue some of these things that's been really positive? We have reports of, of students who teachers will say, gosh, they were always so quiet and I never really heard from them or knew much about them. And now in this digital world, where that student might be much more comfortable is contributing and adding things and sharing resources and is is showing a whole new side of themselves. And while it's not ideal for every student, perhaps in that environment who, who like the in-person, it's not either or, but when we continue to think about education in a post-COVID world, how do we 
think outside of the classroom, you know, where that learning can and does happen anywhere. We've seen it and help every student find that optimal learning environment that they deserve and that is accessible for them. And you're right. So what do you see as the biggest challenge? I mean, honestly, the state can't continue to buy connectivity for students. And what, I don't know, not advice, but what do you think is the biggest challenge and what we really need to embrace going forward? Yeah. And, you know, I think you're exactly right. Um, And we know that. uh, And we went into it knowing that in response to a crisis, we are providing as much as we can to as many as we can, as immediately as we can. But we know there are longer term concerns. The digital divide, while it's an absolute priority of the COVID-19 crisis, existed and was an issue before. This has shined a spotlight on it, but it is an area of extreme inequity, and we need to continue to address that in a post-COVID world. We had to address the immediate needs of providing connectivity very quickly, which we've already talked about. Even, like I said, the two months that it took us you know, we wished it had been, it could have been even quicker. And with that timeline, cellular was our best option. Didn't require any new infrastructure built, being built in these areas. We could, we could do that. But we still have work to do with that because those service contracts are going to expire. And when they do, many students will lose their connectivity. Hopefully, we'll be out of the COVID crisis at that time. But in order to not lose this these positive changes, this positive momentum around innovative teaching and learning that we're seeing, we need to ensure that students will have access to the connectivity, regardless of whether we're in a crisis or not. So for those students, we need to ensure that I think that, you know, broadband is the longer term solution. We need to ensure that we can get these 8,000 students who live in addresses that don't have the possibility of having broadband get it, <laughs> you know, that we don't have that. Those, that's not acceptable. We need to have that. We also know that there are places, which I think cover in those 8,000, where those students, even the cellular option won't work for them. You know, there, right. we all have, anybody who's driven around Maine knows there are dead spots when you're on the phone. <laughs> and, you know, there are students that are living in areas like that where if we give them a hotspot, they can use it, but they might have to travel to get to a place where it will connect. Right. And so, you know, we really need a more permanent solution. I'm really proud of our immediate response and how the state has supported and, and, and responded to this and prioritized this. It's in keeping with the 18-year Senator King's visionary <laughs> idea of MLTI and putting Maine ahead by connecting them in this way. And we continue that today, 18 years later, with how we responded. But as we ask our educators to adapt and continue to provide this type of technologically integrated education and enhanced education to our students, it is essential that we're able to ensure that those students will be able into the future, not reliant on service contracts, to be able to connect and stay engaged. Well, speaking from Otelco's perspective, we're trying to make that happen as fast as we can. Well, I think that this has been quite eye-opening. I mean, everybody, no matter whether they're in Maine or elsewhere, has been touched by 
kids being home because pretty much the whole country is shut down. But having an inside look has been really awesome to see what Maine has done. And I'm sure several other states are, you know, doing the same thing. I guess the best thing we can do at this point is thank you and say really best of luck. Kudos for what you've managed to do so far. And, you know, everybody's pulling together to try to bridge this digital divide. And what you guys have managed to do in the short term for this emergency is nothing short of amazing. So thank you from the kids in the state. And thank you for being here this morning. Well, thank you for having me here to talk about it. And, you know, as I say, it's a statewide team effort. And I'm so grateful uh, to work in this state and with the extraordinary people that are all that are all teaming together for it. Well, thank you again. And hey, stay well. <laughs> Thanks, you too. All righty. Next time, we'll learn about how a rural healthcare facility shifted to telehealth and how a doctor relocating last year helped with the transition as the pandemic took center stage this winter when we talked to Dr. Stanley Whittemore, who is the interim director of the Bucksport Regional Health Center in Maine. As always, I thank you for listening. Stay well. See you next time.